Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. My mother had left us, leaving my Kerry-born father and me unsure how to celebrate the nativity, how to fill the void. Home was Finchley, North London, constituency then of a relatively unknown Tory MP, Margaret Thatcher, but then a gift horse arrived, an invitation to join Irish friends for Christmas dinner. It must have been the common bond across the water between expatriates that prompted the kind gesture. In the 1950s, for some obscure political reason, our host had been exiled from his post in the Irish Customs and Excise and was forced to move to London for work. His wife had been a dancer in Jimmy O'Dea's reviews. We got to know the couple through her son, an Irish folk singer. Our host, an erudite man, had a comprehensive knowledge of Irish traditional music. He knew most of the major performers. During a less than entirely happy sojourn in the UK, Joe Heaney, the great Shan Nose singer, briefly stayed with the couple. They said that Heaney would sometimes sing himself to sleep at night. Christmas morning dawned. The religious rites were observed. It was an Irish mile walk to our host's abode. For my father at 18 stone and built like a modern Munster rugby prop forward, it was a chore because of his gammy leg. A tubercular knee infection had left him unable to bend his left leg. Upon arriving, we entered the sitting room and unexpectedly encountered another guest. Tall, lean, with long, thin hands, he was wearing a grey double-breasted suit, an immaculate white shirt and tie. We had just met Seamus Ennis. He had been in the UK making a documentary programme. Like many gifted artists, he did not take great care of himself. His current neglect had led to a medical crisis. He'd been hospitalised from where he contacted our hosts. As a special seasonal concession, the hospital allowed him out for two days, on the basis that he would abjure all alcohol. He gave his word, but then a promise made under duress is not binding. After less than ten minutes, Ennis had complete control over us, his audience. He had a soft, melodic, baritone voice. We hung on his every word. After the meal, we sat by the fire. Jemison, 12-year-old whiskey, appeared, along with beer. I vividly recall how the whiskey was handled with almost sacramental care. Ennis gently cradling a bottle, nursing it like a newborn. I alone abjured the water of life. There was some mention of his work for Radio Erin, and a little talk about his earlier pioneering research with the Irish Folklore Commission in the 1940s. However, the bulk of the now near monologue was about its time with the BBC in the 1950s, recording traditional music in England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. In my childhood on Sundays, there were two particularly special programmes on BBC Radio. The first, as I roved out, the programme Ennis collected for, and the second called The Naturalist, which was introduced by the plaintive cry of the curlew. Ennis talked of his odyssey along the highways and byways, searching for the vast, varied trove of traditional music and culture. At one point, when speaking about his travels in the Hebrides, he reached into an inside pocket 
as if to produce a fountain pen, but instead drew out a penny whistle and piped a melody to illustrate his point. Then, as carousing friends were wont to say, it was later. The fire had dimmed, the whisky was consumed, Ennis was weary. It was time for us to go and Ennis to rest with our friends. The trudge home was slow, but we were inured to the cold. It had been a magical reality for a few hours. I had a slight buzz in my head the next morning. My father did not feel at his best. I moved to Dublin in 1971. I never met Ennis again, although I saw him on the TV in that decade. However, I do remember at a later date watching his daughter, Catherine Ennis, an acclaimed international musician, play Easter Snow as a tribute to her father. Then I recall that cold Christmas day transformed by Seamus Ennis. The apple did not fall far from the tree. Newgrange was out, of course. Only a lucky few ever get to witness a winter solstice there. To sit in the perfect darkness of that ancient chamber waiting for dawn to find its way in. So my friend Cathy and I decided on our own midwinter ritual. We'd walk to the top of Jouse Mountain in Wicklow to meet the sunrise. It had seemed like a great idea from the comfortable distance of a fireside pint. But reality bites pretty hard in the grim pre-dawn of a winter morning, gazing out from the only car in the car park. Wrenching ourselves out of bed had been bad enough, but now, where is the mountain? The jouse we knew from sunny weekend outings was a gentle hike leading up to a glorious panorama that took in Dublin city, the sea, even as far as the coast of Wales. But a thick bank of cloud had enveloped the car soon after we left the motorway and started climbing. We'd seen nothing up there, maybe not even the path itself. However, there was no turning back now. Clinging on to the prospect of a greasy fry down in Enniscary afterwards, we forced ourselves out of our warm cocoon into the clammy air. Conifers framed the path before us in monotone gloom. Winter in the night, had leached all colour from the earth and all scent but the clean, thin note of pine. The fog held what little light there was to itself, the way lying snow does. Out from the trees it stuffed the space like fabric so our voices were confined to a small pocket around us. A stigging wind found us on the boardwalk that leads up the mountain, beading the mist on our jackets. Steps lead to a memorial rock dedicated to the hill-walking enthusiast J.B. Malone, originator of the Wicklow Way. Normally this affords a spectacular view of Loch Tay, its black prehistoric waters lying in a cup of granite. That morning, though, you would not have known there was a lake, 
or a wide valley all the way south to Lockdown. It was in conditions such as these in 1946 that a plane carrying a group of French girl guides crashed into the mountain. Fresh from the trauma of the Second World War, they were on their way to a holiday camp with their Irish counterparts in Rathfarnham. Without the navigation tools we have today, the pilot was relying on visual clues as to location. There were none. All on board survived the crash, largely because the fuselage broke away from the plane on impact. Yet the mountain doesn't seem to hold these recent memories. Once past the regimented rows of spruce on the lower slopes, there is little to suggest modernity. Even the weathered railway sleepers of the boardwalk, slick with wet, suggest something far older than themselves. That ancient network of wooden roads that crisscrossed our island's bogs in the Iron Age. Trees laid down to take people safely from village to village through Tolov Bug, soft ground, avoiding tar black pools and bog holes that might suck you down forever. The shifting glow gave no angle of light to orient us. We had only this road to trust. In that surreal alertness of early waking, we might easily step back 2,000 years, be walking this road back to a cranog to be greeted by a dog's bark, the scent of wood smoke, or up to the cairn near the summit, whose ghost is still marked on Ordnance Survey maps. A reason, perhaps, for the original name, Jowish, meaning fortified height. Half-formed thoughts weaved like her own breath into the pearly air. Higher, and the cloud began to shred, opening pockets of distance. It hastened like a river current, a drift of imagination made manifest. Were we the mountain's dream? Our bright jackets moving in and out of visibility as the veil thinned and thickened. And then everything changed. First the blush hit the high cloud far away up the mountain. Then, even as we turned and pointed, the mist around us began to suffuse with pink. We stopped, wordless, as the glow intensified, bathing us from every angle in peach gold. We were standing in sunrise. Other gifts unfolded, hoarfrost picking up the dawn colours, fantastical wind-sculpted ice in frozen bog holes. The cloud fell back, revealing a dark scattering away up the mountainside. Deer, heads lifted, gone. The last slope was short but steep. We bent breathless against a snow squall, then crouched in the lee of the boulders at the top, just in time to see the sun clear the clouds, searing bronze in all her pagan glory. Taking out our flask of hot port, we toasted the solstice, tasting the approach of Christmas, pitying those still sleeping. The honey bears are prickled, as sharp as any thorn, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ on Christmas Day in the morn. For the rising of the sun and the running of the deer, the playing of the men.
He was kept in his own special container, a leather-bound valise at the back of the radiogram. He only came out on very special occasions, like the Waterford crystal, the polished napkin holders, and the made-of-Aaron linen tablecloth. My mother would unpack him with all the sensitivity of a brain surgeon at work. Each vinyl LP, wrapped in its own tissue paper, was slowly extracted, laid out on a clean tablecloth, and rigorously dusted. Next, the record was fingertipped onto the turntable with a brand new needle already in place in the playing arm. Finally, with elaborate care, it was slowly lowered onto the spinning vinyl. A slow humming at first, a few little bumps, and then flowing out of this ancient electrical time machine, the magnificent singing voice of John Francis McCormick. Truly, Christmas was here at last. The high priest himself has arrived. Even today, years later, to hear that voice is to gently push open a door into Ireland past. By now, the original McCormick sound has metamorphosed through many technological generations in the search for the original sound. It's been a 100-year journey from shellac cylinders to vinyl and finally computerization to digital. McCormick's record career and record sales were enormous. He recorded a vast array of songs, sold millions and became both the doyen of Irish America and globally the most famous Irishman of the age. Given the ravages, too, of decades of emigration that he lived through, McCormick, an emigrant himself, became an Irish global icon. His voice now echoes down those long queues for Ellis Island and Botany Bay. No wonder, then, that listening to him on those childhood Christmas nights was often to sit in the valley of adult tears. Older now, we recognise, of course, that Christmas nights are all about those who are there and those who are no longer there. Can we these days ever imagine what it must have been like for those generations of Irish mothers and fathers who waved their children onto ships, many with the real expectation they might never see them again? Many never did. Children who in time shrunk to mere letters and cards and packages of shamrock for St. Patrick's Day. It is still difficult to hear McCormick's emigrant laments without sensing his huge listening audience of ghosts. Around me as a child on those Christmas nights, jaws would tighten, eyes close, and heads lean back into McCormick's long, unfaltering lines, his breath control, and that ringing high register. Here was a voice that sounded like the rarest of vintage port. It was not a huge resonant operatic voice, one to smash glasses up in the high shelves, but rather an engaging, melodic register that charmed and enchanted. With its artistic superstructure, it was Renaissance, but its chassis was Irish. After the party games and the sing-songs that petered out, McCormick's audience would be summoned to gather around the gramophone for the final act in this The Irish Christmas Litany. People John McCormick had wooed the world's opera houses, but at this particular moment... In this dying of the year, he was ours alone. Annually, the melancholy procession would begin. 
The Last Rose, Kathleen Mavorian, Molly Brannigan, The Harp That Once, Boys of Wexford, Mother McCree. We were suddenly adrift in a Hiberno land of shamrocks, round towers, wolfhounds, and that collie dog, forever frozen in time on the LP labels, listening to his master's voice. The music and the emotion would build, pumping up the room. This was our bar telling our story, from dispossession to famine to emigration to liberation. Songs of love, songs of broken hearts and songs of defiance. Little post-colonial Ireland shaking a fist at the big bad world. Within McCormick's own lifetime, almost a million Irish had emigrated and at his concerts around the world they would gather to hear him. On Christmas nights especially, in those thousands of emigrant homes across the globe, tears would flow, children would solemnly study tearful adult faces as their high priest's plangent recital filled the drawing rooms of the Irish diaspora stuck in their moment. It was McCormick's great look that Tom Moore's extraordinary marriage of high Victoriana and Celtic melodic genius preceded him. Poor old Moore. He was savaged by Irish history, but his songs have survived his detractors. McCormick's friends included James Joyce. Yes, the same one. Joyce, a decent tenor himself, was curiously obsessed with McCormick. He won a Feshkill medal singing, and he and McCormick once sang together in the same Dublin Horseshoe concert in 1903. A reviewer commented on the occasion, Mr James A. Joyce, the possessor of a sweet tenor voice, sang charmingly the Sally Gardens, but gave a pathetic rendering of the Croppy Boy. However, he concluded that Mr J. F. McCormick was the hero of the evening. Famously, Joyce's wife, Nora, was reputed to have said at a Zurich funeral, Poor Jim, he had a lovely voice. He should have stuck to the singing instead of bothering with writing. But Joyce, in the end, gave McCormick the ultimate accolade. The great tenor's persona wanders through Ulysses, and in Finnegan's Wake, Shem and Sean, the rival twins, are most probably portraits of James Joyce and John McCormick. In 1938, with his Pavarotti-like world fame, McCormick gave his final concert in the Royal Albert Hall to an audience of 11,000. Were we to bury an Irish time machine to be dug up in a thousand years, to see what we were once like, what would we place in it? Probably a book of Kells reproduction, surely a hurling stick, maybe some potatoes, and of course, John McCormick LPs. I suspect that wherever, whenever, there will be Irish, they will still be hearing the master's voice calling. Ethna's Carol, Before the Birth of Columkill, 7th of December, 521. One night, my son inside me still, the fields of garten deep in frost, when star on star was gathering to light a candle for the Christ, I saw a shape within the fire, a golden angel who revealed a mantle woven with the colours 
of all the flowers of the fields. And how I cried when suddenly the angel cast it into space. I watched the cloak unfold and cover a swathe of mountains, plains and seas, and heard a whispering. Your son shall mirror the flowers of this world. He'll be a prophet to his people, exuding the fragrance of the Lord. That night, my son inside me still, the fields of garden deep in frost, when star on star was gathering to light a candle for the Christ. I thought how life expands from flesh and how the spirit would unfurl my son and clothe the world with light. My son, so tightly, darkly curled. of the city hall still smouldering after the burning of Cork in December 1920. Members of Cork Corporation gathered in the courthouse on January 31, 1921 to elect a new Lord Mayor. No sooner had the meeting started, however, than members of the RIC burst into the chamber demanding to see the list of those present. The Unionist, Sir John Scott, stood to leave and when an RIC officer blocked his path, he took a tuning fork from his pocket and launched into the chorus of Chiro Pinsuti's I Fear No Vo. Other councillors fell into his swing of things and began belting out versions of There Is A Flower That Bloometh and Krushkin Lawn. But the hilarity suddenly stopped when the officer called on a group of councillors to step forward. Among the group was Tyg Barry, who started to sing I Have Been There Before, a play on Rossetti's poem Sudden Light, as he was dragged outside and shoved into a military lorry. Tyg Barry had been there before. The British authorities regarded him as an absolute troublemaker. Describing him, writes his biographer Donal O'Driscoll, as a socialist, Bolshevist or Sinn Féinor, as the occasion demanded. In and out of prison, such was his profile that he was the only volunteer arrested in Cork City in 1918 as part of the infamous German plot. However, unlike his comrades Tomás McCurtain and Terence McSweeney, until this, the centenary year of his death, Tighe was all but forgotten, not least in his native city. Born in Blarney Street in 1880, Tyg Barry immersed himself in the growing Celtic revival that segued into our long revolution. A hurler, coach and referee, 
he played a decisive role in the regrowth of a vegetating Cork GAA in the early years of the 20th century. He championed Camogie and was madly proud of the women of Blarney Street, who, with his training, metamorphosed into the first Camogie team in Cork and second in Ireland. His greatest gift to the GAA, however, was his guide to hurling and how to play it. First published in 1916, it was the original hurling manual for the GAA and became rule book and go-to reference for decades thereafter. Responding to what he considered the Cork examiner's despicable obsession with foreign games and union jackery, in 1912 he began a revolutionary sports column in the rival Cork Free Press. With the motto, the hand that flung the battle spear was trained at the Camon, he wrote of Gaelic games as something almost beyond sport. Between reports of fixtures and results, he threaded extracts from the stories of Charles Kickham through ways to best advance the ball to the goal. In rhyming couplet, he urged service to one's club, county and country. A socialist republican in the style of James Connolly, Tighe regularly transported arms and intelligence around the county under the guise of trade union work. At his behest, Connolly travelled to Cork in January 1916 to advise volunteers on guerrilla tactics ahead of the Rising. Tighe later described the disastrous hesitancy in Cork during Easter week as the greatest regret of his life. With Tighe as their full-time organiser, farm workers across North Cork struck for a wage increase in July 1920 and were victorious. Servant girls and creamery workers joined the huge contingent that marched from Buttefint to Churchtown under a banner declaring Workers of the World Unite. Six months later, on a joint ITGWU Sinn Féin ticket, Tighe topped the poll in the municipal elections and took his seat in City Hall exactly a year before his fateful arrest in the courthouse. On a misty November's day in 1921, Tighe Barry and a group of internees stood at the fence in Ballykindler internment camp in County Down. They were saying goodbye to friends who were leaving under the terms of the truce. Their mood was jovial. On sentry duty that day was a teenager whose mood was anxious. Warned to watch for potential escapees, he continued to shout at the group at the fence to get back, get back. Tyke jumped on an upturned bucket to better his view and was raising his hand to wave when he was shot. Even the traders on Moore Street packed up shop and joined with the quarter of a million who silently watched the sombre procession to the pro cathedral. Michael Collins broke away from the treaty talks in London and crossed to Dublin to honour his great friend. Tyke's homecoming to Cork was, according to the Sunday Independent, a great impressive thing, greater even than that of Terence McSweeney. At his gravesite in St Finbar Cemetery, his comrade Sean O'Hagerty told the grief-stricken mourners that while Tighe lived for the common man, 
he died for the whole of us. On December 6th, exactly three weeks after Tighe's death, the treaty was signed and all internees were released. Not everyone could be Irish. We were gracious about that when I was growing up. On St. Patrick's Day, our Irish eyes smiled at the Pirellis and the Confortis, the Walquists and Sandstroms, the ethnically challenged in Chicago. And if they weren't beguiled, they kept quiet about it. For a start, they were vastly outnumbered in the north side parishes, and our powers were overwhelming, as any child could see. Who else could annually upturn the school schedule? On March 17th, we had no lessons. We had feasting, culture, art. Green frosted cupcakes, Roberta Gormley singing all the verses of Turulurulura, and a reel from the Fahi sisters, rigid as ironing boards, clattering across the floor with their glazed eyes fixed on the cloakroom door, as if Cromwell paced behind it. We drew shamrocks on cardboard and shaded them in with our crayons, and as a finale, we saluted the patron, there in the shadow of the L-tracks, we implored him high in his mansion above on us, his dear children, to look down in his love. And we sang with the confidence of the anointed, knowing that at that very moment our mayor was downtown at the head of the parade, asserting rights over nature itself. Let the river be green, he decreed on March 17th, and it was, dyed to its watery roots a color unrivaled by anything nature could produce. The mighty Chicago River didn't boil up and spill over either. It just kept rolling along. And despite what your granny said, no one died of lead poisoning or dysentery from the water. And that same boisterous green was ours, and ours alone to wear on the day, in the boys' ties, on the girls' hair bows, and on the adults' lapels, in shamrock badges with balloon-shaped leaves. An exception was made for the Schneiders, who were Hanrahan's on their mother's side, but it would have been an outrage had others claimed the insignia of the superior caste. And I know exactly when it first struck me that our version of the way things were might not be accurate. It was the year the McDevitts, who lived across the alley, got a real shamrock from Ireland. The neighbors went on pilgrimage to see it, not too many at a time, because old Mrs. McDevitt was 90, and children made her edgy. And there on top of the kitchen fridge was a frail little plant, as scrawny and dry as old Mrs. McDevitt herself. Hardly a colour you'd claim was green at all. Not a boastful item in any way. But the real turning point came in secondary school, the year Jane Lehman wore an orange ribbon on March 17th. For a joke, she wept, after we had held her head under water in the wash basin. Mother Casey, whom we felt should have seen our point, put us in detention and acidly identified a rough parallel between being drowned for the wearing of the orange and being hanged for the wearing of the green. Mother Casey is now also high in the mansions above, but I never let a St. Patrick's Day pass without a small salute to her, and another to Jane Lehman. Wherever she is, I hope she's wearing the orange, and the green as well. 
On this morning's programme, we heard Christmas Day 1963, an audience with Seamus Ennis by Jim Galvin. And that was followed by Easter Snow by Seamus Ennis. Alternative Winter Solstice was by Christina Park. And after that, The Holly and the Ivy, sung by Crux Vocal Ensemble, directed by Paul McGough. Then from the recent Miscellany Archive, John McCormick at Christmas by Tom McGurk. And that was followed by I Hear You Calling, sung by John McCormick. Ethna's Carol, a poem by James Harper, and after that, Soontree, Lullaby by Janet Harbison. Tyg Barry, Forgotten Hero by Lourdes McKee, followed by Nephilis Im Aner Shal. And finally, also from the Miscellany Archive, St. Patrick's Day in Chicago by the late and much-missed Mary Marr, trade unionist, feminist activist and journalist, whose death was announced just this past week. Er day Gareva Annam. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find out more about this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.